The value of the investment, it's twofold. One is that we'll call it the booked value, right? There's a cost associated with things like learning and development and training programs. And those go on as an expense, as you noted. But what they do is they contribute to what I'll call the intangible side of this whole equation, which is that when you've got folks, your employees are treated in this fashion where they're given the opportunity to learn and grow, which is something that people do when they feel appreciated. And when people feel appreciated and feel valued, they tend to do a little extra. It's the going above and beyond, the discretionary effort piece. There tends to be greater employee engagement. And this isn't the only thing that contributes to discretionary effort. But in the absence of it, your likelihood of having a higher turnover certainly increases. So there is a real cost for turnover. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this episode of Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, your host and a coach here at Quantivos. And our guest is Dave Bookbinder. Dave is an executive director of valuation services at Hayfley Flanagan. He is author of The New ROI, Return on Individuals, and a podcast host for Behind the Numbers. Welcome, Dave. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Dave, when I first read about you, I read, Dave is on a mission to change the conversation about how the accounting world recognizes the value of people's contributions to a business enterprise and to validate what every CEO on the planet claims. Our people are this company's most valuable asset. I've had, over a lot of years, a lot of exposure to financial accounting. Back in the mid-1980s, I was in the vice president for finance office at the University of Minnesota. Our budget at that time was hundreds of millions of dollars. I just looked it up earlier, and the 2020 budget at the university was $4.3 billion. That included 28,000 employees. I worked for years in the management consulting arm of KPMG, but obviously had a lot of exposure to financial records then. And I was the CFO of a nonprofit with over 100 employees. They don't show up other than their cost. Salary and benefits are very often the largest cost for businesses, but there is no offsetting value of employees. Why is that? I've been asking that question for years. Why is that? Um, and that's what actually got me started on my journey to prove that people really are a company's most valuable asset. So as you said at the top of the program, um, every CEO on the planet has pounded the table and said, yeah, our people are this company's most valuable asset. A lot of times it's lip service. They don't necessarily believe it. They don't, may not necessarily behave in ways that would indicate that they believe it. But in my world as a valuation professional, I've valued besides businesses and intellectual property assets, one of the IP assets or intangibles 
that I value throughout my career is people, human capital. And we do it in an accounting exercise that I'm not going to bore you with right now unless you really want to go down the rabbit hole. But suffice to say that we don't really pay a whole lot of attention to the way we put a value on people. And that's because people don't appear on a balance sheet. Do you know where they actually appear? You alluded to it in cost and expenses, but in my world, when you value people, they wind up buried in a category called goodwill. And if you're, if you're laughing at that, you'll really get a good chuckle when you find out the methodology that we use to value people, which is a cost to replace method. And basically the underpinning of that is that everybody's fungible. You're all the same. So if we're going to replace a marketing department and we know the average salaries of the employees and how long it will take to find new ones and what the recruiting costs are going to be and what the learning curve looks like, the cost to replace the employee turns out to be a fraction of the salary. When in reality, the employee's contribution is multiples of their salary. So that's what started me on this journey. And why, why people aren't on a balance sheet? I don't know. Earlier in my career, they were. Um, and then something changed. And uh, they have not been on the balance sheet for quite some time. So I'm hoping to change that. How do you go about changing that? <laughs> one conversation at a time. One interview at a time. Uh, articles, books, conversations across social platforms. The good news is there's a lot of momentum behind this. I'm not the only one that's speaking about the value that people contribute. My lens happens to be from a valuation professional. So I've got a different perspective. Um, some folks in human resources that I've met over the years have told me that I've given them kind of the, the voice and the language uh, with which to use when they're in the room with the CEO and the CFO, uh, because now they've got some data that they can point to. They've got language that they can use that gives them a seat at the table where maybe they previously uh, didn't have that before. So uh, things are changing. There was uh, some movement in the SEC recently uh, that requires that public companies do some reporting around disclosures of human capital. I do believe that that's going to become more robust over time. And it's also an investable strategy. So this is the where the rubber really meets the road, Brian. You, I think you asked me before we started recording, the so what? You know, what? what how do we really make a difference here? And my, I told you my answer would surprise me, and here it is. I've said this publicly many times. Nobody gives a rip about how we value human capital from an accounting standpoint. Until people are on a balance sheet, nobody would care, right? What's the point? So that's not going to change. But what has gotten people's attention besides the disclosure requirements is that it's a demonstrated investable strategy. In other words, there are ETFs out there, that's exchange-traded funds, that you can invest in that have people-focused, people-centric investment strategies. The companies that are doing the good things, the right things, the just things for their employees are selected for these portfolios, and they do outperform. I honestly don't know which of our clients fall into those portfolios, but I do know that our clients almost, I wouldn't even say almost, without exception, are investing in their people. And again, those investments show up as expense. And yet, as managers become leaders, as leaders build greater engagement and commitment and retention, all of that is delivering value to the organization, yes, to the employees, and to those the organization is serving, whether it's customers, clients, or shareholders, or even the communities that, that 
the organizations live in. How do you account for the value of those investments? So the value of the investment, it's twofold. One is that we'll call it the booked value, right? There's a cost associated with things like learning and development and training programs. And those go on as an expense, as you noted. But what they do is they contribute to what I'll call the intangible side of this whole equation, which is that when you've got folks, your employees are treated in this fashion where they're given the opportunity to learn and grow, which is something that people do when they feel appreciated. And when people feel appreciated and feel valued, they tend to do a little extra. It's the going above and beyond, that discretionary effort piece. There tends to be greater employee engagement. And this isn't the only thing that contributes to discretionary effort. But in the absence of it, your likelihood of having a higher turnover certainly increases. So there is a real cost for turnover. We, we measure that pretty clearly here in terms of what the actual dollar cost is. And then there's also the impact of the things that you can't measure, which is when the discretionary effort and the, uh, the nuanced things walk out the door, that institutional knowledge. So, you know, if Joan's been with the company for 15 years and she knows by the look on your face, today's not the day to ask you about budget expenses, the new hire may not have that kind of uh, intuition. Dave, I think what I'm hearing, very much like when people talk about human resources and they say, the soft stuff is the hard stuff. Valuing the human side of the organization sounds like it's the hard stuff. It, it is, but it doesn't have to be quite so hard. Um, from my lens in, in the exercise that we do to put a value on people, um, I've pointed out in my books some of the different ways that we could approach the methodology that I think would make it a little bit more robust and give some consideration to the things that, frankly, we're missing right now, things like employee engagement. I think we can all agree that if you've got two employees, one's engaged and one is disengaged, the engaged employee is going to be a greater contributor to the business and therefore probably, I'll use this term carefully, worth more than the disengaged employee. So we can incorporate that. There are ways we could do that. That's just one example of things that we can do better in terms of the math. Many years ago, I was engaged in the world of organizational change management. And at the time of the whole dot-com boom, a lot of dot-com companies were growing through acquisition. And I remember one of my clients brought us in because their growth strategy was basically to have more money left to buy other companies after the competition ran out. But the CEO called up one of the companies they had bought, and they had owned this company for over a year, and the switchboard answered with its old name. And he realized, we ain't doing such a good job of making them a part of our company. And I was actually brought in, understanding this whole psychology, if you will, of human change, to develop a human due diligence template for them to apply as they were looking at future acquisitions. And I think this is another part of what you're talking about. The value that people have to our company really depends on, are they fitting into who we are and what we're trying to accomplish? And so it really begins, I think, whether it's acquisition or hiring, in being more intentional about our hiring. Yeah, for sure. It's about being intentional with hiring. But what do you do with these people once you get them in the house, right? 
that's where it really starts to matter. And what you alluded to with that receptionist answering the phone with the incorrect name, that's a subtle example of maybe how things may not be going properly. But everybody in your organization can either be a brand evangelist for you and will be telling everybody how great a place this is to work, which will increase people's interest in coming in and working for you or make your hiring process that much easier because you're going to get better vetted and referred candidates. Or they can crush you and they can go on Glassdoor and, and other platforms and post negative reviews about you. So the choice is really yours. As you're looking at bringing people onto the balance sheet, if you will, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges to making this happen? Oof, boy, great question. Part of it's probably inertia, right? It is what it is until it isn't. Um, I think there may be a perception about the heavy lift that it could be to actually do that correctly. Uh, I've heard uh, folks argue that from an accounting perspective, it creates a, a whole host of other issues about offsetting accounts. So if you're going to put people on the balance sheet as an asset, how do we characterize the offsetting liability? So there's that component. And again, in my profession, until people are mandated to be on a balance sheet, I don't see that we're going to be able to do any more or people aren't going to be willing to do any more than is what required right now. So I want to come back to our people are this company's most valuable asset. You alluded to the fact that sometimes that's real, sometimes it's not. As you look in an organization, how do you determine, and I'm not saying that this is something that you would ever state publicly or, or publish, but how do you determine whether an organization is actually recognizing its people as its most valuable asset. And yet here we are going to talk about it publicly. So I, I, without I names, say this. without names. Yeah. No, no, no. I got you. Look, there are lists that you can avail yourself of people, the organizations that are deemed to be the great places to work, the, um, the just companies that are listed by just capital. I would recommend that maybe take a look at the holdings of some of those ETFs I alluded to, uh, the human capital centric ETFs. Those folks have done a very deep dive into the underlying financial statements and beyond that there's uh, employee survey data that's being used in one of them that I'm aware of. I mentioned them in my book by name, um, but there's employee survey data that's being utilized where they, they really look under the hood to determine who's got the engaged workforces, who are doing the right forms of investment in their people, because they know that companies that are doing those types of things today will outperform their peers over time. So they're getting in ahead of the curve and riding that wave. That's where I would look. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of one of my former clients in my own coaching business um, earlier in my career who came into an organization that had a board and among other things, one of his direct reports was a former board member. And the board itself was very engaged in sort of monitoring the nickels and dimes, if you will, the not really being the board that the organization needed. Where does the board play in all of this? Yeah, I think the board needs to be committed to the idea of creating a great environment for people. Uh, and then it, look, the tone has to start at the top. So the CEO reports to the board. So that would be by definition where it would start. But the CEO has to be the one that hands out the um, proverbial glasses of Kool-Aid for everybody else to drink. 
And what I've learned from my conversations with the various CEOs that I've spoken to is that it takes an intention. Your employees need to know that you are serious about instituting culture change, that uh, this isn't just another fad, right? We're not just going to put another ping pong table in the break room and, and sing Kumbaya. We're making some changes here. And sometimes change is going to look a little different than it did in the past. And it takes about 18 to 24 months, I'm told, before the employees actually start to recognize that, hey, they were serious, that this is for real. I've heard recently that uh, a program that I know one of the CEOs I interviewed for my first book talked about, which uh, he called the no assholes policy, has become increasingly popular. And basically, we don't tolerate bad behavior. If you behave like an asshole, you're out. And uh, he also shared with me that from a legal perspective, asshole is apparently not a protected class. I actually, I, I think I know the CEO you're talking about. I've, I've read about the policy. You mentioned the C word, culture. Culture makes a difference in the human valuation. And, and I have spoken with at least one individual who echoes, I think, in his own way what you're talking about, which is the CEO's role is really as a culture keeper, as a culture shaper. And again, thinking of some other friends of mine, they make the argument that if we do right by managing the internal environment, the internal environment, our people will take care of our business, our customer, our clients. So it almost feels like to me that this is a hard to dispute argument, that it's very clear that there is an incredible value to the people in the organization. And if there is an incredible value to the people in the organization, I'm back to the question, so why don't we recognize that value? Uh, yeah, I'm coming at it from a different lens because I'm, I'm hearing the resonance a little bit differently. And I think it comes down to a couple of things. One, you're asking your leadership team to buy in and potentially change behaviors that they've learned over the course of their entire careers. And they may have grown up philosophically that you know, people are replaceable. You know, don't let the door hit you in the butt on your way out. If you don't want to do the job, we'll find somebody else who will. And that mindset is difficult to shake. You alluded to it earlier about when the managers become leaders. I want to share a scary fun fact with you that stuck with me for a while. My friend Dave Nash shared this with me, that the average age in the U.S. when someone gets promoted to manager is 31. And the average age in which this person gets their first managerial training is 42. So they've got a full decade to screw it up, learning from the people who uh, they've reported to who may not be doing it the right way. So you want to talk about where damage is done, a lot of that gets done right there. But mindset shift, I'll give you another example. Um, a large firm, a large accounting firm, I'll even go that far as to say, that has done wonderful things around culture. Um, CEO is a big champion of it, dead serious about it. Um, I don't know if they've formalized their no assholes policy, but it's clearly understood. And yet they struggle to get the culture shift down to each of their local offices. It's a global firm. So how do you do that? When you've got one person, for example, in an office that, quote, didn't get the memo because, like I alluded to, their mindset shift hasn't happened yet. So it, the CEO has to be very, very diligent in making sure that the change initiatives that they're trying to implement make it all the way down into the local offices so that everybody's actually participating. 
then of course there's the expense, right? You talk about the learning and development things, any kind of initiative that's good for people and growth and development is generally uh, deemed to be um, by some, unfortunately, as frivolous expenses. And in some service industries, the time is deemed to be, um, you know, it's non-billable time. So it, it isn't really productive time, even though you and I could argue that an hour of a team building event may be more productive than any meeting that that person's going to attend in their lifetime, but it mindset shift. Dave, we're going to have to wrap up here. Any last thoughts on this topic for our listeners? Yeah, I, I would say a couple of things. I'd say one, I'd say hang in there. I think there's hope on the horizon. Now, there's a lot of smart money and big money that is pushing the initiative now and striding the spotlight on the fact that people really are a company's most valuable asset. And if you're a CEO out there and you've heard the story that people really are your most valuable asset, but you've been reluctant to buy into it, I would invite you to try it and watch what happens to the value of your enterprise. So even if you're not of the view that that people really matter, even if you just fake it till you make it, do those right things by your people. Treat them well, treat them with respect, treat them with courtesy. Watch what happens to your culture. Watch what happens to your top line. Watch what happens to your bottom line. And that increases your valuation. Dave Bookbinder, author of The New ROI, Return on Individuals, and host of the podcast Behind the Numbers. Thank you so much for this conversation. My pleasure.